welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Absolutely delighted to welcome our speaker today. Uh, Andrew Gardner and I have been trying to connect for about 300 years, and uh, we, 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 it's just fantastic to finally be doing so. Andrew uh, is the senior pastor of a fantastic church in Hong Kong called The Vine. Um, probably a little bit like ours. Uh, started small and, and then, you know, has, has grown fast. And um, it, it, obviously Hong Kong is uh, headline news right now. I don't know if you can just touch on that, um, but we want to know pray for Hong Kong uh, at this time of uh, revolution almost it feels like. Andrew is married to Christine, uh, they have a daughter Mia uh, and uh, he, he, although he's born in this country he's lived in Hong Kong since he was 12 years old so about 10 years. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, would you just put your hands together and welcome Andrew Gardner. Appreciate it, thank you. Thanks Pete. I, I feel like I'm home, actually. I was at the working service this morning, of course, and uh, somebody asked me where I was born, and uh, I don't really remember, uh, and I said, well, I was born in Runnymede, Negum, and they said, well, that's just up the road, and I'm like, I'm home. I've never been there, but, you know, other than when I was born. Uh, I uh, left here when I was seven and lived in the U.S. for four years. Any Americans here? You can always tell, because they always go, whee! That's what they do. Um, and uh, I lived in the eastern seaboard of the U.S. for four years, and then moved to Hong Kong when I was 12, and uh, have lived there ever since, which, as Pete so beautifully said, has only just been a few years. Um, I bring you greetings from the Vine Church, and I do encourage and ask that you would pray for us. Um, Hong Kong uh, is in a, um, a really difficult spot right now. Um, just briefly, what's beautiful about it is that uh, about 13 weeks ago, it started in a, in a peaceful, nonviolent, resistant movement against the challenges that were happening to our judicial freedoms in the city. And uh, what was stunning about it was that it was begun by the church. The church was at the forefront of standing up for the human rights of the people of its city. Um, in fact, I attended one of the uh, prayer uh, mornings that happened just before the first march. We had the first march was about 600,000. The second march, we had 2 million people come to the streets. And the church was right there at the forefront. And in fact, we gathered with 50,000 people, of which I would say 49,000 of them were not Christian. And everybody was singing the Hallelujah Chorus together. And we were praying. And isn't that incredible? And we were praying, believing that the Holy Spirit and that peace would be in our city, that we would be able to stand for the rights uh, that were being eroded in our city and yet do so in such a peaceful way. And, and the first number of protests were that. Unfortunately, what we've seen happen is, uh, and perhaps <laughs> understandably for some sectors of, the, of our society, we've seen that peace turn into violence on both sides of the spectrum with both the police as well as the protesters. And now we're in a very precarious situation in our city where there really doesn't seem to be any end. Nobody wants to back down. Nobody wants to lose face. Uh, and the protesters, as well as the police and government, are standing their ground, and we don't know how it will end. Um, and so I'm on sabbatical right now. I've got a four-month break from my church, uh, as well as my city, and it's been tough because my heart's been torn, as you can imagine. I want to be back there leading our church at this time, and yet at the same time holding on to the, uh, the fact that the Lord has ordained this time for me. Um, and I've been in touch with a number of our leaders, and they're just saying, please, 
uh, ask those lovely people in Guildford to pray. And I know that you guys are a praying church, and so I just encourage you. Can we just do that real quick right now? Uh, let's bow our heads. Father, we lift up this beautiful city of Hong Kong, people that are loved by you, and a city that's crying out for change, and change that is felt on the human rights level. And Lord, we're grateful that by your Spirit, you've used the church over 2,000 years to be a voice in the areas of human rights. And so, Father, we just ask that you would move upon your leaders. We pray for the government, Carrie Lam, who leads that, that city at this time. Pray for the police who are under incredible pressure right now. Pray for the protesters, those that have violent intent, that you would bring your spirit of peace on them. And those, the many more, who are peacefully resisting, I pray that you would just bless them. Strengthen our people. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, everyone says... I just want to honor Andy Hodgkinson. He, he's in this room right now. He's been hosting me all weekend. He used to live, where are you? There he's right there. There's a little, little weak wave there, Andy. You're supposed to go, yeah, me, yeah. Um, so Andy used to live in Hong Kong, and uh, about 15 years ago, he brought a prophetic word to our church that our church is still flourishing in and through today. And I honor you, uh, Andy, for your prophetic gift and also just for bringing that word to us. And thank you for hosting me and Lyndon as well. Uh, their beautiful son, Joshua. Hi, Joshua. He just got an electric scooter for his birthday. So zip, zip, zip. That's what I've been doing. Anyway, I am going to preach at some point. Is that all right? So I want to talk to you this morning uh, about fear, disappointment, regret, shame, and failure. It's going to be a lot of fun. Are you ready? You should have gone to the barbecue that you were invited to go to, but now you're here. And the reason why I want to share on these topics is because it's actually what I think God is doing in my life right now. I've just finished the worst year of ministry uh, that I've experienced as a pastor, and I'll share a little bit about that journey as we go. But I believe these things, fear, disappointment, regret, shame, and failure, are the critical things that the enemy uses to hold us back from actually living life in the direction that God wants us to live to actually uh, positioning ourselves to be able to flourish in the way that I think the Holy Spirit wants each of us to flourish. The, the, the kind of life that Jesus died and rose again for, regret and shame and hurt and disappointment and failure, is going to cause you to begin to reinterpret the good things of life, the good things that God has given you, and to interpret them in ways that would make you feel like you are not the things that the Word of God says that you are. Are you with me? I want to frame this by, by sharing, quite personally, a story out of my own life. I have a phobia. It's a clinically defined phobia. My phobia is the ocean. I know. I don't mind floating on the ocean on a boat. Uh, I don't mind walking beside the ocean and dipping my toes in it every once in a while. But the idea of swimming in the ocean fills me with abject terror. Now, I, I'm not entirely sure, but I think that this phobia began when at the age of eight years old, my, my parents allowed me to watch the film Jaws. And I, I also have a mild phobia of cello music, by the way. Um, and, I, and I watched that movie with pillows in front of my eyes. I was absolutely terrified as an eight-year-old of this horrible shark and the fact that this shark eats anybody who gets in the ocean. And from that point onwards, from eight years old to 15, I never went in the ocean. Now, when you grow up in Hong Kong, which is 200 islands all surrounded by water, that's a pretty difficult thing. 
At the age of 15, my mum thought it would be funny, in my mum's kind of sense of humor, to take the family to a, a holiday in the Seychelles, which is in the Indian Ocean, completely surrounded by water, and the only thing you can do in the Seychelles is water-based activities. And so we show up there as a family. I'm a 15-year-old now, haven't swum in the ocean since I was eight and saw that silly movie. And I saw, as I walked into the uh, hotel, a sign that said, a one-day scuba diving experience. And I thought, this would be the fantastic way for me to break my fear. I'll just flood myself, I'll go into the ocean, I'll swim around, I'll realize that there's nothing bad in there. The beautiful waters of the Seychelles is going to be my healing place. Are you with me? So I sign up for this course. My parents thought I was mad. They're like, but you don't like the ocean. I'm like, you brought me on the holiday. I'm like, yes, I don't, but I think this might help. And they're like, okay, we'll sign you up. And no, the one-day scuba diving experience was in three parts. First of all, you had one hour of teaching about all the things that can go wrong when you're scuba diving. <laughs> in that first hour, basically the summary of it was this. The summary was this. When you're in the water, do not have a moment of uncertainty. And I thought to myself, the only thing I'm planning to do in the water is lots and lots of moments of uncertainty. That's basically the plan. So that was the summary. We then, for the next couple of hours, we go into the swimming pool. Whilst all the other tourists are swimming around on the surface of the water, we're on the bottom of the swimming pool learning how to actually scuba dive. And we're learning how to take off your mask and rip out your regulator and put it back in and all that kind of stuff. So, so I found, I discovered that over the couple of hours at the bottom of the swimming pool, that actually I was a pretty good scuba diver. That I could actually do this quite well. I could remove a mask and put it back on again. And all the kind of tricks that you needed to know, I was good. We then had lunch where my heart rate began to a little bit faster. And then we got on this little boat. And the idea was that we would go out, there was about 16 of us, and we would go out about 200 yards from shore. They would drop the anchor rope, and you were supposed to swim down the anchor rope, swim around for 10 minutes or so, back up the anchor rope, and that was your one-day scuba diving experience. As I'm sitting on this boat, my heart is going crazy. I'm sweating like crazy. And they buddy us up with people in pairs. And I'm buddied up with this French guy. I'm 15. He's probably in his mid-20s. He felt ancient at that time, but probably in his mid-20s. And he didn't speak much English. I didn't speak any French. And so, but he could see the fear, the terror in my eyes. And so he looks at me. He goes, uh, uh, in the water, no moment of uncertainty. <laughs> I'm like, okay, whatever. Uh, we get out about 200 yards, they drop the anchor rope. I'm like dying. Everybody starts to, to drop into the water. They start to go out towards the anchor rope and they start to descend down the anchor rope. My French buddy jumps in the water and starts to swim out. I realize that if I don't go now, I'm leaving him to die. So I get in the water, I say a prayer, I, I get in the water and I drift out to the anchor rope. He gives me a thumbs up and he starts to descend down the anchor rope. And I'm thinking to myself, if I don't go now, this could end really badly for him and for me. And I'm completely petrified. But I'm like, God, if you love me at all, help me now. I let out my air, and I start going down the anchor rope. I get about five meters down, and I sense a movement on my right-hand side. Now... When you scuba dive, you can't just suddenly go, oh, what's that? You know, So you have to kind of go like this, right? And so I slowly move over, and a shark swims past me on the right. It swims down towards the other scuba divers and then slowly drifts off into the horizon. A shark. I've been in the water five minutes. I've not gone on in since I was eight years old. 
This classifies as a moment of uncertainty. Now, what I should have done is gone and got my French buddy and helped him out of the water. Instead, I panicked, as any good 15-year-old would. I swam right up to the surface. Luckily, I was only about five meters down, so there's no bends issues. I get right up to the surface. I swim over to the boat. The Seychelles boat boy grabs me under the arms. He pulls me up on my back onto the boat. And I rip off my, my mask. I rip out my regulator. And I'm about to shout, shark, shark. And the Seychelles boat boy, he leans over me and he goes, hey, man, did you see the dolphin? Yeah, yeah, I saw the dolphin. Did you see the dolphin? I came back to make sure you saw the dolphin. Did you see the dolphin? <laughs> Isn't it amazing how a fear in our past can be so powerful that it distorts the reality of our present? I was in the water five minutes, and God rolls out the aqua version of the red carpet. And he gives me the most beautiful thing he's created that floats in the ocean, right? A dolphin. People scuba dive for years to see dolphins. And I get a dolphin within five minutes, but I'm so conditioned to living my life, focused on this phobia, this fear that I have, that even a beautiful mammal like a dolphin, I can turn into a shark. And here's the thing I realize. I think for us Christians, we often end up living life in the wrong direction, allowing our past to be the primary paradigm that tells us how we should interpret our present. I want to ask you a question right at the front, and it's, it's this. When we face moments of uncertainty in life, what is the primary paradigm that would define how we respond? What's going to be the primary paradigm for you? And to help you unpack that thought, did that come up behind me? Yeah, wow, good. To help unpack that thought, here, here's, here's what I want you to know. In every moment of life, there are three paradigms that are at work in us, our past, our present, and our future. All three of those at work in your life at every moment. And every single one of us at every moment in life, we're moving towards our future. That's the beautiful thing about life, isn't it? But here's the thing. I think the majority of us as Christians, and I put myself in this camp right here, I think we end up walking into our future facing backwards. We're going ahead in the things that maybe God's called us to. We're moving ahead in our future, but we're doing so facing backwards. If you think about that, how can you actually know where you're heading if you're only facing backwards? And here's what we do. We walk into our future facing backwards by focusing primarily on the past as that interpretive lens for what's happening today and in the future. I don't think there's anything in the Bible that is negative about the past. The past is good. We can learn from the past. We grow from the past. God asked Israel to set up memorial stones as they walked and as they achieved things, as God did amazing things. Don't forget, don't forget. The past has a lot to say about our presence, doesn't it? But I don't think there's anything in the Bible that would say that the past should be the primary paradigm that helps you interpret your present. In fact, I think it's the opposite. I think actually the Bible invites us to have the future as the primary paradigm that interprets our present and help us to, uh, to understand the past. Are, are you with me? I was in Belfast earlier this week and never been to Belfast before, amazing city. And I was walking around this, uh, at Falls Road and Shankrill Road and just getting soaking the whole thing up. And I saw these murals all over the place and there was this beautiful graffiti one and it said this. It said, the nation that has one eye on the past is wise. The nation that has two eyes on the past is blind. Hmm. 
And I think we Christians walk into our future with two eyes so often on the past because hurt and failure and regret and disappointment and shame and these things have such a profound impact on us that they begin to tell us who we think we are as a Christian. Oh, I can't get that job that I was hoping to get because of that failure in the last place that I worked. And instead, I think God says this, hey, if you would just experience and know and see all that I've created for you in the future, if you would just believe what the Word of God says about your good future, about who you are made in Christ, then maybe actually you might walk into your future facing forwards. I mean, Jesus said to the disciples, and he was pretty strong about it, he said, anyone who puts their hands on the plow and looks back is not fit for my kingdom. God gives us the book of Revelation. I'm wondering if you've ever wondered why we have the book of Revelations in our Bible. It's not about seven-headed dragons. It's actually, I think, about this. God jumps forward to Revelations 21, 22. He peels back how the story all ends. And he shows us this picture of every tribe and tongue and nation and people group all worshiping God together. He pulls that back and he says, that's how it's all going to end. That's your future. That's where you're headed. Hey, guess what? Live on behalf of that vision now. Some of you in this room, you're walking into your future facing backwards because fear and disappointment and regret and shame and failure is such a powerful voice over us, and we are so easily able to make that the primary paradigm when God's standing over you and He's saying, my word, my future, the reconciliation of all things, the redemptive history that you're swept up in, that should be the primary paradigm that begins to tell you who you are. I want to preach about this a little bit today by giving you a story out of the Old Testament. It's a story uh, from Samuel's life. And in fact, I, w- I want to go right to the end of Samuel's life and show you how Samuel himself struggled with this reality of these paradigms and how God comes and releases him. Because I, I believe that there are some of us in this room today, and I put myself in this position, where we're still too tethered to the brokenness. And it's stopping us from actually receiving the very thing that God wants for us. And I wonder whether we might open the Scriptures together today and actually be set free together to be able to move into our futures facing forward. Does that sound all right? Right at the end of Samuel's life, um, God comes and does something quite profound for him. He's lived an amazing life. He's been one of the only judges in that period who actually lived in integrity before God and before his nation. He was loved. He was admired. He was seen as a man of integrity. He had led his people, Israel, so well. But at the end of his life... Just as he was about to die, the leaders of Israel realized that succession was going to go to his sons to lead them, and their sons were not of the quality and the background of Samuel. And so they come to Samuel, and they say, Samuel, we don't want your sons to lead us when you die. Actually, the way they say it is this, you are very old, and we don't want your sons to lead us when you're, when you're dead. And Samuel is so hurt by this, not Not so much because of what it said about his sons, although that couldn't have been easy. But he's so hurt by this because he realizes that the people have rejected the very person that God had put in place. And instead they said to him, we want you to give us a king like the other nations so we can be like everybody else. Give us a king to rule over us. And so Samuel, feeling abject rejection, comes before God and he says, God, they've rejected me and my family as leadership over Israel. 
And God, in only the way God can, says to him, no, no, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me as their king. And because our God is so gracious and loving and merciful and forgiving, he says, okay, we can work amongst this structure. If this is what the people want, let's give them what they want. And I can work and redemptively through that structure. And so he says to Samuel, I want you, Samuel, to fill your horn with oil and go pour it over the one that I've anointed to be king. Samuel, as a prophet, would have this horn that he would put oil in to go and, and anoint various people that God had led him to anoint. And, and so he does. He fills this horn with oil. He goes, and God leads him to Saul. And, and he pours this oil over Saul, and Saul is raised up as the king for Israel. And Saul, right on that first day, it's amazing what he says. He goes, wow, I, I, I can't believe it's me. He goes, who am I? Who am I that I would be chosen to be king over these people? I mean, there's such beautiful humility in him. And then he starts to lead. And then he starts to get a taste of power. And then he starts to experience all the things of what it comes to you when you lead a group of people. And like so many other leaders ever since, he's succumbed by that power and he's overcome with pride. So much pride that he begins to erect statues of himself all over Israel. The one who said, oh, who is me, is now wanting everybody to worship him. He begins to become disobedient to the very things that God has asked him to do. And God is so grieved by this that he actually comes to Samuel and he says to Samuel, I'm going to lift, I'm going to release my anointing over Saul. This throws Samuel in another spiral of regret and shame and failure. Because here's what Samuel's thinking. Samuel's thinking, I'm at the end of my life and the very last act of being a prophet to pour oil over this one, this one failed. I've lived a good life. I've done the best that I could do. I've been obedient. And the last act of me being a king, uh, sorry, me being a judge and a prophet has led to failure. Can you imagine what it was like for Samuel? Samuel was torn apart. And he's so upset by this. He feels responsible. He feels horrible. He feels embarrassed, shame that he had done this, that Saul had become the one that Saul had become. And Samuel didn't know what to do with it. He was stuck, walking into his future, facing back to the failure of his past. And God comes at 1 Samuel 15, starting in verse 34, and says some things. Everybody with me? Pete is. Thanks, Pete. Then Samuel left for Ramah. This is 1 Samuel 15, starting in verse 34. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his own home in Gebeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and now be on your way. For I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, for I have chosen one of his sons to be king. God shows up to this moment of Samuel's life where he's in deep mourning, feeling that rejection, feeling that shame. And God shows up and says this, how long, Samuel, are you going to mourn for Saul? Some of you are stuck mourning for that job that you didn't get, mourning for that marriage that didn't work out, mourning for that relationship that has broken down, mourning for whatever it is that's happened in your past, and you're stuck. And God would come up to you this morning, I believe, and say, how long are you going to mourn? Now, I want you to notice a couple of things. 
God doesn't come to Samuel here. And he doesn't say, why are you mourning for Saul? He says, how long are you going to mourn for Saul? Very important difference. Can you imagine if God had come up to Samuel, who's in this place of brokenness, in this place of shame and failure, and God showed up and said, why are you broken and failing? Why do you feel this way? Come on, get over it, move on. That's not what he does. God is this compassionate fire. He is this merciful God. He knows, he feels, he sees Samuel's brokenness. He doesn't come and say, why are you mourning? He says, Samuel, how long? Out of this compassion and mercy, he's got how long? You see, it, it tells us something quite profound, that there is a place for mourning. Amen? See, the worst thing we can do when we experience these things of failure and regret and shame and hurt and disappointment, the worst thing we can do is bury them under the carpet or, or it's that big elephant in the corner of the room that no one's going to talk about, but everybody comes over for a cup of tea. All right? Are you with me, English people? Yes. And here's God. He's turning to the people, turning to Samuel, and he's saying, look, I'm with you. There's a place. There's a season. There's a space for mourning. Don't bury it. Don't ignore it. Don't, don't sort of come to me with it. Say, I'm feeling this way. I'm hurt. I'm broken. The Psalms are filled with the invitation and the space for mourning. Some of you in this room are in a season of mourning. And I don't want you to hear me say anything other today other than you can and will be comforted in your mourning. Jesus, Matthew 5 Four, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I need this. I'm in a season of mourning right now. Uh, March 8th, my dad woke up with a lump under his arm. He never had a lump before. He's been healthy for many, many years, 70 years old. And he goes to the doctor, and he says, I've got this weird lump under my arm. And the doctor says, well, we probably should get that tested, and they do. And a couple of days later, they find out that he has liver cancer. Stage four. The doctor said, no, it's okay. Uh, it's late, but with this immunotherapy we could do, with this radiotherapy we could do, chemotherapy, we, we reckon you could have a minimum of five years, maximum ten. Ten, I was okay with. Five, that felt a little bit short to me. And we as a family were wrestling with the reality that our very healthy dad within five years could be gone and that he was facing a huge battle right ahead of him. A week later, he wakes up one morning and he's yellow. You know, when you have a liver problem, jaundice is a, is a reality and he's yellow. And we take him into the hospital and he dies two days later. Start to end, two weeks. That was March 23rd this year. I'm on a four-month break to mourn my dad. And here's what I'm wrestling with right now. Regret, shame, and failure as his son. That I didn't say the things that I should have said. That I didn't maybe live in the supportive way that I could have with him. That I, that I didn't have those conversations that I should have had with him. And now I can't. The feeling of failure of being the son that I had wanted to be, but I'm not. And God says to me, there's space for that, Andrew. You can mourn. It's okay. And I feel his comfort. And I pray for anyone here that's in that space for, now, for you right now, in the season of your life, that you would know the comfort of the Holy Spirit that is promised to you by God, by Jesus himself. Blessed are those who mourn. It doesn't make it easy. 
And I know that I'm walking into my future facing backwards because the regret and the shame and the failure as a son is playing so heavy on me. But I also know that there's hope. God comes to Samuel and he says, how long are you going to mourn? And what he was really saying to Samuel is this, that at some point, mourning has to stop for new life to begin. At some point, we have to let go of that regret and that shame and that hurt. At some point, that failure of that marriage, that failure of that business, whatever it might be, at some point, that has to stop for new life to begin. Otherwise, we will be putting our hands on that plow, looking over our shoulder. We'll be walking into our future, facing backwards. And you've got to realize for Samuel here, man, this is in a moment in history like no other, and Samuel has no idea. You see, Samuel is so consumed by the mourning of his past that he is ignorant. He's blind to the importance of his future. Because think about the redemptive moment of history right now. Samuel is about to anoint David to be king. Samuel is about to be given the opportunity to pick up his horn again and go anoint the one who would start the Davidic dynasty that would lead its bloodline to our Savior Jesus Christ, whose death and resurrection would lead us all into redemptive history as God had already planned and always planned from Genesis 1. That moment is right here. Samuel has no idea because he's consumed with his mourning of Saul. The regret and the shame and the failure is so playing on him that he's blind to the importance of his future. And God sees that good future, sees the David, sees the Jesus, sees you sitting in church right now here in Guilford. And he says to Samuel, Samuel, how long? How long are you going to mourn? See, for some of us in this room right now, there are Davids ahead of our future. And yet we're in danger of receiving them because we're holding on to our souls. Come on, church. And, and, I, and I sense that the Holy Spirit wants to release us and move us in a direction where we can walk into our futures facing forwards, not ignoring it, not turning our back on it, dealing with it, recognizing it, and yet realizing that in the Holy Spirit... We have the way to shift and move. I want to show you how that shift happens here as we come to a close. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. God comes to Samuel and he says these words, Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. Now, we read those in the pages and we just go, oh, Okay. But for Samuel, can you hear the weight of those words? He thought he was at the end of his life. He thought his last act as a prophet was a failure. He was dealing with the regret and the shame of having done that before his people that he loved. And God comes and says, fill that horn with oil. Basically, Samuel would have heard it this way. I'm not done with you yet, Samuel. Oh, no, no. I'm not done with you yet. You, you think that the hurt and the rejection and the pain of all of those things means that you can't go on forward. You're on plan B. You're not on plan B, Samuel. Some of you in this room, you feel like you're on plan B. Because that marriage didn't work out. Because that job didn't come through. Because that relationship broke down. And I can't really have what I had always wanted anymore. Because that sin that is at work in your life. God's saying, I'm not done with you yet. 
That there is so much more. There is a future ahead of you. There is redemptive history for you to get swept up in. There's a way in which I want to use the tool for Samuel was the horn. What's the tool for you? It might be your business. It might be your family. It might be something. A gift that God's given you to pray. A gift that God's given you to speak or whatever it is. There's a tool and you're feeling like you can't quite move forward with that right now because of all of that stuff that had happened in the past. And God's saying, fill the horn again. And what do we fill it with? He says, fill your horn with oil, this beautiful symbol of the presence of God for us. See, when God comes to Samuel and says, how long are you going to mourn? Here's what he's really saying. He's saying, how long, Samuel, until you invite my Holy Spirit to minister into that area of your life? Like, how, how long? Be- because I, I want to reach you and meet you in that place. I want, Andrew, for you to get healing from how you feel a failure as a son to your dad. But are are you willing? Are you brave? Do you have the courage and the faith to actually let my Holy Spirit into that place? How long, Andrew, are you going to mourn? How long are you? You see, it would be easier for us to walk into our future facing backwards because the only thing you need to do that is a good memory. You don't need faith. (laughs) This is why it's hard as Christians for us to move into our future facing forwards because the forward thing, the future thing is unknown. It's unexpected. We're not quite sure. We have the comfort of our past and we're scared of this uncertainty of the future. Walking into your future facing forwards, inviting the Holy Spirit to deal with these areas of brokenness in your life, that takes faith and we find faith very challenging. One of my mentors, Erwin McManus, a pastor in L.A., he put it so beautifully this way. Let me read this to you. We so often would rather accept the comfort and safety of a past that holds us captive than the mystery and uncertainty of a future that sets us free. Isn't that beautiful? How long, Emmaus Road, are you going to mourn? There's a place for mourning. There's a season for it. And my prayer is if you're in this room right now and that's your season, I hope and I know that right today as we respond in a moment that the comfort of the Holy Spirit is here for you. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to grieve. It's even okay to make mistakes. Would you welcome the Holy Spirit into those moments of grieving for you today? If you're mourning here, may I invite you to mourn well. If you're in this room, though, and maybe also like me, you realize you're walking into your future facing backwards, that you realize that you're holding onto your soul when God might just have a David for you. May I encourage you by the anointing of the Holy Spirit today to allow the Holy Spirit to heal and to speak life and you would find yourself walking out of here today with those two hands on the plow facing forwards. And it might be uncertain. It might not be sure. And I'm not promising you that David's going to come straight away. (laughs) Samuel anointed David, but it was 12 years from that point until he actually became king. There's no amazing quick fixes. Often there isn't these immediate responses. And yet with faith, we decide that this is no longer what is going to get me there. This might be what sets me free. I invite the band to come and I want to pray for us as a church. Can we bow our heads? Or maybe we stand. Do we stand? I don't know. How do we do it? Do we stand? Whatever. Let's stand together as a church but bow our heads as we do so. Holy Spirit, I wonder if you just join me in a time of ministry. Just bow your heads, close your eyes, and Holy Spirit, come.
Holy Spirit, we're so grateful. We're so grateful that we have a community like this where we can come. A safe place. A place of brothers and sisters all working out their salvation with trembling. A place where we can bring our sin and our brokenness. A place where we can celebrate our healing and our future. Holy Spirit, we pray. If you're in this room this morning, as your eyes are closed and you're in a season of mourning, I want to encourage you just now to open your hands before the Holy Spirit. As you open your hands, you're just in a posture of inviting His presence in. And by opening your hands, you're saying to Him, Lord, I'm not sure how to deal with this stuff. I'm not sure how to how to move forward. I see the promises of your scripture for comfort, but I'm lonely. I'm hurting. I don't know what to do. Holy Spirit, come. For those in this room that are in a season of mourning, would you bring the comfort so promised in your word this morning? I want to pray specifically for those in this room who you know you're walking into your future facing backwards. You know, maybe like Samuel, that you're so consumed with the hurt and the fear and the failure and the disappointment and the regret and the shame of your past that you're blind to the importance and the beauty and the invitation of your future. And if you know that's you this morning, I want to encourage you also to open your hands in this moment. And I'm just going to pray and then I'm going to invite Pete to come and or whoever to lead our time of response, but this moment here is where you come before the Lord humbly. No one's looking around. And you say, Lord, I don't want to be walking into my future backwards. Lord, I want to have faith again. Lord, help me. You're saying over me this morning, how long will you mourn, which you're basically inviting me to welcome your Holy Spirit into these places that I've not. That's going to take courage for some of you in this room. And I want to just pray for you that you would feel now the gentle leading of the kindness of the Holy Spirit. That His kindness would lead you to a place of saying, Lord, in this area of my life, I need you. And I've kept it closed and hidden and shut for enough time. And this morning, I want to open it to you. Would you come? I had a picture this morning as we were worshiping and woking, and I want to share it with you as well of somebody just wearing a huge amount of clothes, ridiculous amount of clothes, on a hot summer's day like today. And there was just this baggage that had built up, and those clothes were no longer appropriate for the season that they were in. Maybe they were appropriate at one point, but they're no longer appropriate anymore. They're wearing winter clothes in a summer season. And I feel for some of you this morning that will resonate with you. You feel like you're wearing winter clothes in a summer season. And the Holy Spirit would like to just shed those for you so that you can come naked and unashamed before Him again and receive His ministry and His love. Just continue to receive of the Holy Spirit.